As you may know, my appearance on the preaching schedule here at Spencerville is, is mercifully rare, perhaps um, definitely for me and perhaps for you as well, uh, but I do consider it a high duty to spend this time with you, and I want to acknowledge and thank Chad and the other pastors um, who could be here filling this time for uh, entrusting me with this date on this Exodus series. As I told the choir at our rehearsal on Wednesday, if I see this as just a kind of extended children's story, it'll make me feel more comfortable. So if I start asking you strange questions or climbing the walls, you'll know what I've slipped into. I'll bring you up to date on where we are in the story of Exodus at this point, which I think is important, certainly is important to set up this song of the sea. After Jacob's sons and their families join their brother Joseph in Egypt, they start to multiply. Pharaoh is concerned and forces them into slavery, eventually ordering that all newborn boys be thrown into the Nile. The baby Moses is saved by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up, kills an Egyptian, flees into Midian, and encounters God in a burning bush, who tells him to return to Egypt and lead the, the Hebrews into Canaan. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So ten terrible plagues ensue, including rivers of blood, frogs, and death for the firstborn sons of Egypt. Pharaoh lets the people go, but soon changes his mind and pursues them into the Red Sea, where God parts the waters for his people, then consumes the pursuing Egyptian army. And that brings us to today's episode with the people of Israel standing delivered from slavery, death, and destruction on the other side of the Sea of Reeds. A couple of weeks ago, my, my mother was here visiting. You may have seen her. Uh, and one, uh, one evening, we decided to have our meal up on the roof of my building. We have a, a green roof up there with a lot of spaces for seating uh, that, are, that are spread out from each other so multiple groups of people can enjoy the, the space. And I noticed over at one of the tables uh, distance away my neighbor, Jason Kimmelman. And Jason is a rabbi. He lives in my building. My building is a wonderful collection of strange people, of which I'm proud to include myself. And... Jason, the rabbi, and I have talked um, through, through the years that I've been living there in the building. He knows that I, um, that I come and keep the Sabbath here, and, and of course he keeps the Sabbath, so when we pass each other on Friday or Saturday, um, I'll say Shabbat Shalom, he'll say Happy Sabbath, and we talk some about theology. So I saw my opportunity to talk about Exodus with a rabbi, and I went over to his table a couple of weeks ago. He was sitting with a couple of friends there, and I said, Jason, I'm supposed to preach a sermon at my church he knows me as the musician, so he was a little bit uh, puzzled about that. I said, yeah, I don't know either exactly why it's happening, but it's happening. And I would like for you to tell me about your experience with um, the Song of the Sea, the Song of Moses and Miriam. He said, well, actually, Mark, you're in luck because seated here at this table is not just one rabbi, but these two friends of mine, I think they were visiting from Cleveland, are also rabbis. So for about a half of an hour, I, I uh, communed with three rabbis on my roof, and we talked about Exodus 15. I put to the rabbi some of my questions. Why is there such violence in this passage? One of the things that really struck me the first time I reread the passage um, was the violence. You know, I don't like verse 3, which says, um, God is a man of war, um, being the, a, a peacekeeper by nature that, that grates at me. One of the rabbis there pointed out the obvious. He said, if you and your people had just endured 400 years of slavery, if you were um, finally and miraculously released from that slavery, and then if as you were traveling in your moment of redemption, you discovered that you were being pursued, this time not to be re-enslaved, but to be killed by spears and swords, um, and then you watched that pursuing army uh, swallowed up by the sea after you had crossed it yourself in dry land, you would sing a pretty gleeful song. 
And you also would probably celebrate the very violence in that act that, was, that, that occurred there in the sea. And I had to admit that he had a point. So I think in order to understand this song, we have to put ourselves into the narrative. We have to feel the sand under our feet and hear the thunder of that pursuing army. And imagine the despair of knowing that we are in our last moments before we'll be slaughtered by spears and swords. In uh, 2008, I was on the mall for the presidential inauguration. There were approximately 1.8 million people. It was very, very cold, and at certain points, it was almost impossible to move anywhere. You were so surrounded by people that making any progress was, was impossible. And I think about those Egyptians, or I should say rather the people of Israel who were at the back of that line who were traveling across the sea. And, and given that their numbers, we see uh, the numbers of men being listed at something like 600,000. So with women and children, we're looking at a crowd that's about the size uh, that was there on the mall that day, or, or larger even. And uh, you could imagine if you were in, in the end of that, surrounded by people, you'd be waiting for hours, hours and hours, before you even got to the passageway in the sea. All the while, scouts reporting that this uh, impending doom is coming for you. And I think um, in that moment of kind of claustrophobia where you can't fight and you can't flee, you can't, there's the fight or flight mechanism is failing you in that moment. The frustration would well up to such a great degree. It's that tension, fear and dread relieved on the other side of the sea that leads to this song. So let's read it together. If you'd like to take out your Bibles, we'll read from Exodus 15 verses 1 through 20. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. 
You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The word of the Lord. Being a musician, one of my first questions about this song is how it would have sounded like there on the sea, on the side of the sea. Unfortunately, because music notation didn't exist or we don't know, uh, we don't know what it existed like and certainly we don't have any recordings, we don't know exactly what that sound was like. But the good news to a degree is that because chant has to be singable and has to be memorable and somewhat repetitive, even some of the chants that we have now that are sung as part of this tune give us at least a glimpse of what it would be like to set this to music. So we'll explore some of that now. This is a plain chant melody for this text that's read um, during the Easter vigil service in many Christian churches around the world, Christian uh, churches that, uh, that celebrate that service of Saturday night as the Easter is welcomed in. This is a, a chant, again, dating from around 1000 um, B, uh, no, not BC, AD. So here's how we'll do this. We're not going to do the whole thing because we've just read the whole passage, but just to give a taste of the music, I'll sing a little bit of this response that starts this, and then you will repeat after me, and then I'll sing a verse, we'll sing a response, and in that way we'll get a, a taste for the singing of the Song of the Sea. Let us sing to the Lord, he has covered himself in glory. That's the response, sing with me now. Let us sing to the Lord, he has covered himself in glory. Beautiful. I will sing to the Lord, for he is gloriously triumphant. Horse and chariot he cast into the sea. He is my God, I praise him. The God of my father, I extol him. Let us sing to the Lord. He has covered himself in glory. So you can get a sense how one leader could lead a, a, a large group of people um, in, in a song like this without them necessarily having to know it, singing it responsibly. I asked my rabbi friends how often the song of Moses is used in the liturgy of their Jewish services, and they laughed at me. The reason was that the song of the sea, which they know also as Shirat Hayam, is so central to Jewish life that it is said and sung sometimes every single day as part of their morning services. It's also read every year on special Sabbaths uh, known as Shabbat Shirah, meaning Sabbath of song. And it's read on the seventh day of Passover, which we've just... Um, which we've just experienced uh, a week or so ago, the day when they, they celebrate the sea being split. On this day, many people have the custom of staying up through the night, studying the Torah, and recreating the parting of the sea, even going so far as to pour water on the floor um, and dancing through that water. When this song is chanted, its melody and style are different from the other Jewish songs of faith with tunes that are reserved only for this song. So it's an incredibly important song. They told me at some point during my conversation with them, 
which is understandable. I think we, could, we can relate to this. But for them, Exodus is everything. So these sermon series that we've been having would be very much a part of the heart and soul of, of the Jewish faith. And it's not only that in the Jewish faith that this song is important, it's an important hymn in Eastern Orthodox churches and in Roman Catholic and other Christian services in the way that we've just sung this in the Easter Vigil. I think that this is important to people of many faith traditions and it points to us some of the central truths about how we should respond to God's deliverance in our own lives. One of my favorite parts about this story, and it was, came to me as a bit of a surprise because I thought that the Song of Miriam seemed tacked on without enough space given to it as a kind of um, reminder of how women were given short shrift. But there's something really interesting about this, and maybe some of you are aware of this part of the story. So I'll just read again from verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. Reading this at first, Again, I, it's, it seemed like an afterthought, but Moses had just sung unaccompanied with no mention of instruments or dancing. He finishes the song, and Miriam, in a way, I think with a sparkle in her eye, would have said, Moses, are you finished? And then she showed him, along with, her, with the women of Israel, how to really rejoice. In his book, Insights in the Torah, Rabbi Zalman Soritzen offers this explanation of this song of Miriam. Miriam did not sing a new song, she and the women only repeated the song of Moses and the children of Israel with greater vivacity and emotion, with drums and dancing. It was the same song, but with an intense concentration and sacred fervor, surpassing that of the men. Indeed, the women of that generation were more righteous than the men, and it was by their merit that our ancestors were redeemed. In the Talmud, this collection of Jewish writings surrounding the Torah it is written that the Jews were redeemed from Egypt on the merits of the righteous women. During their captivity in Egypt, many of the men had lost hope. Many even divorced their wives so they wouldn't procreate and thus subject their offspring to the fate of slavery. The women kept hope alive, trusting that they would soon be redeemed, and they encouraged and supported the men. The Talmud further describes how the faithful women of Israel sustained their people through captivity. At night, the story is told that the women would sneak into the camps of the men that were some distance from theirs, and they would have heated water during the day in the desert um, with which they would bring hot food and, and bathe the wounds that the men had sustained during their hard labor. And it was during many of these, uh, these late-night visits that tradition says that children were, um, were born or children were conceived, thank you, thus sustaining... The, uh, the people of Israel at a time when the men had given up hope. The Talmud comments there were three excellent leaders for Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. She was born at a time when the impression of the Jewish people had reached its zenith. Her name has two important meanings that would point to her role as a leader among the women of Israel. The first is from the Hebrew root mar, which means bitterness. She felt the ache of her people and the bitterness of their captivity. The other meaning in her name is the Hebrew word Mary, meaning rebellion. She refused to submit to the mentality of slavery and led a quiet, faithful rebellion among the people. The Midrash, an ancient commentary on the Torah, explains that the righteous women were so confident that God would perform miracles that when they left Egypt, they took musical instruments with them ready to sing praises. You can imagine that luggage space 
was at a premium fleeing from Egypt. So adding these instruments to their collection was not necessarily an obvious given. After the acute pain of living in slavery, they needed to pound on drums and shake tambourines to express the ecstasy they felt at the fulfillment of their faith. I want to tell you a story that's probably not a, a good idea. I can already tell it's not a good idea. <laughs> I got a lot farther than this in first service, so. Anyway, um, it's about my father who passed away very, very uh, not long ago. But it's a good story, and it illustrates the power of music in the life, in our lives, to bring us out of difficult places. In November of 2014, I got a call from my stepmom. And she said, if you want to see your, your father, you better get out here. He's been hospitalized, and his, his cardiac output is very, very low. And so, of course, I, I flew out there. Uh, I discovered him, um, or I, he, was, he was at the, the ward of the hospital. I think it's a 7,000 ward. Those of you who know Loma Linda Hospital may know this. But it's kind of like the Hotel California where you check in, but you don't check out. It's the place where um, very few patients who go there um, come out. And, of course, you know, uh, given that my father died not long ago, that he did come out of that particular ward. Um, and so that was the good news. But at the time, we didn't know. Um, he, he, he was, his, again, his cardiac output had dropped something like 20%. It was ridiculously low. And in order to keep his heart going, they had to put him on these heart presser medications. And, again, as some of you medically-minded people will know, um, those medications fight with your kidneys, and the kidneys, in his case, lost. And so in this moment, with all of these medications flowing through him, his kidneys were build, had stopped filtering, and those toxins had put him into a kind of a coma. Uh, he would come out of his coma occasionally and look around the room very confused and, and make some kind of utterance, and then he would fall back into unconsciousness. Uh, so that was difficult to, to witness, obviously. I decided that if he was to wake up at some point in the middle of the night, um, I would like to be there, given that it might you know, be his last time. So I sort of camped under his bed or beside his bed, and sometimes you know, the nurses would, would bring me in like one of the more comfortable, which were still not very comfortable, chairs where I could sleep. But on, on the second night when I was there, I was underneath his, his bed, and he said, I, I, I heard him in the middle of the night, two in the morning or something, and I heard him say my name. And so, of course, I got up, and I peered over, his, over the railing of his bed to listen, you know. And very weakly, he said, Mark, get me my iPad. And I said, what do you need your iPad for? But, you know, of course, I'm going to do it. And he pointed over to the, to the drawer that was there in the room, and he said, get my iPad and my headphones. And so I got his iPad and his headphones, and I put them on his head, and then he directed me to a playlist of, of songs that he had. And I don't remember all of them, but I remember Amazing Grace was one, and the others were all um, sturdy hymns of faith. There were four pieces uh, entirely, or four pieces, he, which I played through. He listened to them, and then he fell asleep. And I took away the, um, the headphones, and I put the, the, uh, the iPad back in the drawer. The next day, the story began to unfold, and essentially what had happened over the last few days, when we thought he was completely unconscious, he actually was able to hear everything that was going on in the room around him, all of our conversations as a family, and unfortunately, the neighbor's television, which had been on in the room, um, was playing, among other things, Jerry Springer. 
So what had happened in my father's toxin-addled brain is that he was in a lucid dream, and in that dream he was taken down to hell, where not surprisingly Jerry Springer was the devil. And all of my father's relatives were children, grandchildren, friends that he had known were brought before uh, Jerry Springer and my father there, and Jerry Springer con condemned them uh, for all of their sins. And, and would list the sins, and it was my father's job to, to argue for, for the salvation of, these, of his family and his people. I don't know how he knew all of my sins necessarily, but somehow my father seemed to know that in his dream. And he said it was incredibly painful, and that in those moments when we would see him uh, wake up and look around the room confusedly, he was really begging to be let out of this dream in any way possible. And in fact, at times, um, he actually wanted to die in order to escape Jerry Springer in hell, which I can understand. <laughs> that would be pretty bad. So on the night when he asked for his iPad, um, he was beginning, as the, as the dialysis cleared his system, he was beginning to emerge from this dream, but he needed, um, he felt like he was still being pulled down um, to hell and he needed uh, assistance. He needed something to, to help him make that final journey. And that was when he asked for me to play these, these four hymns for him. And he fell asleep dreamless for the first time. I won't overly romanticize this story or turn it into a simple object lesson. My father, he was raised as the son of an Adventist minister, but he left Adventism 40 or more years ago. And he was what he himself would describe as an avid skeptic. Those of you who knew him or knew his writings in Adventist Forum or um, Spectrum, those places uh, would attest to this. This experience of the hymns and, and Jerry Springer in hell, it didn't change him in that way. And I'm not telling this story as a happy tale that ends with my father returning to the faith of his youth. He didn't. I see it as an endorsement for the power of music to redeem, to accompany us on our journey, and to bring us through our darkest hours. Even though my father had long since let go of his faith in God, he turned to these hymns to lift him from his hell into the light. It did that for my father, even when he didn't believe the meaning of the words. For those of you who do believe, how much more powerfully should you sing them? We are rarely, even in situations where the temperature is more than a few degrees off from our preference, we have not just food, but our favorite foods easily within our reach. Technology puts answers to all of our life's questions right in our hands. In our world of easy convenience, it's easy to sink into comfort and complacency, to lose sight of the intense, deep, peace and euphoric relief that singing our own song of the sea could bring. The story of the people of Israel singing on the seashore is powerful in large part because they experienced something together and together they express their praise in song. I would suggest that we can and should take the opportunity of these Sabbath worship services to connect with each other in our shared experiences of faith, to come together in corporate expressions of worship. This is not a time to come and get a blessing, to sink into our favorite pew and sing half-heartedly the sturdy hymns we've taken for granted. It's a time to remember our connection 
to God's people of old, to hear in our minds the melodies they sang drifting across the sea, and to respond with our own full voices. In today's scripture reading from Revelation 15, we read that those who have victory over the beast will sing the song of Moses. It's an important song that threads a tune of redemption from Exodus through to the end of time. Moses and Miriam praised God for the miraculous delivery from slavery and certain death at the hands of the Egyptian armies. We may not see dust rising in the distance from approaching armies bent on our destruction, but evidence of God's deliverance, power, and kindness are all around us. What will your song be? What will our song be? And how joyfully will we sing? Amen.